Welcome to the fifth season of Better News, a series of special podcasts It's All Journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is fueled by the American Press Institute and the Knight Lenfest Local News Transformation Fund. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research the American Press Institute has published as part of its Better News initiative. If you want more information about the initiative, visit betternews.org. Tali Carr is a partner at HBCU Game Day, a multi-tiered digital platform highlighting sports and culture from historically black colleges and universities. Tali is here today to talk about a report he wrote for Better News about how HBCU Game Day has been able to grow its brand across multiple platforms and partner with third-party companies to monetize their content. Tali, welcome to Better News. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It's uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. Okay. Well, for, well, first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, I was looking at your bio. Uh, you know, it looks like you have a background in, in broadcasting, you know, and what got you to HBCU Game Day? Well, I am a television and, and radio junkie from the time I even knew or understood what it was. I grew up 8,000 years ago, back when there was only three channels and I just remember watching the news with my grandparents and whenever the sports anchor would come on, that seemed like the most exciting thing that there was out of that 30 minutes. So pursued that career in college and worked my way through radio and, and television. And, you know, you get older and you, you get married and you start having kids and you start moving around. And so I kind of found myself in a, a position I was freelancing and shooting a lot of football in basketball games. And in the HBCU space, I, I ran across HBCU game day on Twitter one day. And I was like, man, this outlet really is on top of things and always has all the most up-to-date scores. And I ran into the founder, Stephen, at one of the games, Stephen Gaither. And I was like, man, you got, you have a really great team. Like you guys are really on top of things. And he was like, oh no, actually it's just me. <laughs> so that was kind of the genesis of me saying, well, you know, I got a, a certain, you know, passion and, and skill set with video. I think I can kind of add to what you're doing, you know, with just information and content and, you know, maybe add an extra layer to it. And and that's kind of how it all got started there. So, I mean, you say you found it on, you know, I guess on Twitter and social media. I mean, what was it at that point? It was, obviously, it's a one man show, but, you know, what were they doing or what what was he doing? What was Stephen doing? So it was a website with articles and information, but, you know, Twitter really amplified the brand, you know, specifically for me and, and probably many people like me, you know, at the beginning stages of Twitter, it allowed information to go out, you know, instantaneously where before you had to depend on other outlets and also depend on their filter of whether or not they thought that information was prudent you know, to even disseminate to their audience. So having that distribution point of Twitter, you know, Stephen was able to put out scores in real time on a Saturday. And if you're, you know, an HBCU fan, which is the equivalent of being a fan of Division II football or, or FCS football, you know, not the big boys, so to speak, you know, you might have to wait till Sunday morning to read it in the paper or you know, sit and watch ESPN and, and hope that it scrolls across before the show is over or before they go to commercial break. So, 
this was an ability to get real-time information. So I'm at a game and, you know, I'm kind of wondering who's winning the game across town or how's the team's rival doing in another one of their games. So it really filled a lot of gaps as the ability to disseminate information really began to spread rapidly with social media. So you said you wanted to bring your, your video skills to HBCU game day. What did you initially do? What did you set out to do? So at that point, HBCU game day was, you know, writing about games or just giving you scores. So I was able to actually start to bring to the audience the ability to see the games or at least highlights of the games, you know, recaps of the games that they might not otherwise, again, have saw because, you know, your local outlet might not have deemed it necessary. And, and having worked in local TV news, you know, I understood the challenges that smaller schools had fighting for coverage with larger schools. And then if you're not within that local market, like you might not ever see it. If you're a graduate of a school in North Carolina and you now live in Iowa, <laughs> you know, what, what are the chances that your small school is is going to, you know, have their content out in a place where you can see it, you know, across the country. So we're able to kind of add that visual element to go along the, with the articles and, and information. Yeah, it is even just like small towns. I mean, I, I live just outside of Washington, D.C., and I hear almost nothing about Howard sports, but I can hear everything I want to hear about Georgetown or Maryland and UVA in particular. But yeah, there's another college in the middle of the, the middle of town. They're playing sports that nobody's covering. Were you just doing short videos? Were you producing a show? Well, it, it built into shows, but it began with just, you know, your standard package, anywhere two to three minutes, you know, on the game, being able to see and hear, you know, see the highlights, hear from reaction from the players and coaches, not only the games, but thing that I'm, I find way more interesting, you know, the human interest stories, you know, the, the stories behind these kids, the stories behind these coaches. And not only that, but the, you know, ancillary groups, the band and the cheerleaders, like really getting to know, like, who are all these faces, voices and personalities that make up a game day experience and seeing them beyond just the young lady behind the pom-poms or the kid behind the tuba or the guy who misses or makes the free throw or, or kicks the field goal. So we we're really able to tell those stories and just increase the exposure and, and access to a niche audience, but an audience that was very passionate and engaged with their schools. You know, at the beginning, was it football, basketball? Was it just pretty much whatever the sport was in that season? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we just went along with where things fell within the calendar, but the HBCU experience is so unique because it's not about, Hey, is this the best game I've ever <laughs> seen? You know, it's not that it's the fact that, that you are engaged and passionate about the outcome and the people involved. So it wasn't just the sports. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, the band culture is really huge in HBCU. So being able to see a band performance that you otherwise would not have seen unless you were at the game. And even if, you know, for the select games that were on television, you know, you don't even capture that and, and able to see that within the television broadcast. So, you know, our whole thing is give people content, even if they were at the game, even if they were there, that they might not have captured 
or been able to see it within the context of the lens that we were showing it to our audience. I like the idea of incorporating all these other elements, you know, the band in particular. I, you know, I've watched videos on YouTube from HBCU schools, and it's just, you know, what the bands do, what the dancers do. It's part of the whole experience. I mean, all this show and stuff is going on, and nobody's kicked a football yet or tossed a coin, but it's a whole a whole cultural experience. You know, some people actually could care less about the outcome of it. And some people are, you know, diehard and they're like, hey, it's about the game. So, you know, we have to be able to deliver that content to both people who have, you know, different interests in, in what they're going to the games for. How were you monetizing that in the early days? And how did that sort of change as it grew? Oh, God, I don't even think I knew what monetization was in the early days. It was just a passion project for sure. But the monetization that we did have in place was just, you know, your run-of-the-mill Google AdSense, which, you know, barely <laughs> covered, you know, expenses. But it wasn't even about that. It was just about the ability to make impact. We, of course, had an eye on monetization. Our first really kind of idea that we really could make something out of it, we did have a, a direct deal, a direct buy that someone set up for us with the grocery chain that directly sponsored our content on social media. So I think that was the first eye-opening moment of not only is this, you know, fun, something that we're passionate and serious about, but we might actually see an avenue to be able to make it a profitable operation. Well, let me ask you a nuts and bolts kind of question here. I mean, where do you get your footage? I mean, how are you tracking game scores and what's going on? Oh man, it was it was all us. Like we just took our resources. Again, I'm a television and, and radio nerd, so I, I had a certain amount of equipment, you know, that I just had to be able to do production. And for nothing else, these were my toys as an adult. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, just get in the car and go as far as you can and cover as many schools. You know, at the time we were based in, or Stephen and I, and then we had a. a other partner, Wally Pitt, who joined us. And we were all based in North Carolina. And, you know, there's a rich base of schools in North Carolina, Virginia, South Carolina, you know, within driving distance. So we were able to cover a lot of those schools and, you know, just get the information using the same tools when we worked in, in traditional broadcast and just couldn't find it online, get on the get on the phone, call somebody, you know, have people at the game and just make sure that you had the latest up-to-date information. And the most important thing is that we put it into context because a lot of people at the time, you know, maybe couldn't see the bigger picture of, okay, my team won. Well, what does that mean? Like, was that a big win? Is that important? Adding that context to it was a real important part of the operation as well. So you're presenting this content that's rich to a, a niche audience that you're building. Where are you getting your feedback? Facebook and YouTube were really good for distribution and really good for feedback because, you know, people obviously, you know, can make comments and you can see the analytics. So you can tell what people like to watch. I mean, you look at a video and say, okay, at this point, people started tuning out. Like what part of it did they like? What do we need to make sure is on, on the front end here? Like everybody else in the early years, how do we reverse engineer this Facebook algorithm? Like what made this video so popular as opposed to, you know, this other video. So using those tools that were built in and really just teaching ourselves on the fly, 
you know, about, you know, in essence, what we were doing, not only content creation, but it was digital marketing for the brand, because not only were we getting the information and content out there, but we were also growing and developing the brand as people associated. Oh, wow, this is where I can get my information about this subject that, you know, reaches a niche audience, but is something that I, that I really care and I'm passionate about. <laughs> to look at things in a, in a cold business light, it's important to have a, a loyal niche audience that, you know, advertisers and companies can say, yeah, I want to reach that audience. What's a good platform for me to do that? So where are you guys at now? I mean, you're not based in North Carolina anymore. How big is your staff these days? Well, Stephen and Wally are still in North Carolina. I moved to Atlanta about six years ago. My wife is a journalist, and we were in North Carolina at the time. She was working, and uh, she got a job in Atlanta. And, you know, I just saw it as an opportunity. You know, first, it's my wife, so if she wants to go, here we go. I saw it as an opportunity for us to really extend our, our footprint because we were primarily – dealing with east coast schools you know east coast bias east coast content because that's what we all knew and you know that's where we kind of built that base so moving here to atlanta you know it opened me up to have access on a regular basis to schools here in atlanta like morehouse clark university you know alabama's only a couple hours away so schools like alabama state alabama a&m you know really got us access in the places that we in the past, didn't have boots on the ground before. What's your elevator pitch for HBCU game day? When you know somebody who hasn't heard of it, what would you tell them? I think some of the most important parts is that we we serve a passionate audience who is highly engaged. So if I'm talking to an advertiser or you know someone who's interested, you know, in investing in, in what we're doing. Like, hey, we might not have the millions and millions and millions, you know, followers like maybe some of the other brands, but our engagement rate is always at 10% or above, which is, you know, really high for people that follow, you know, our audience's ability to stay engaged and loyal with the content really makes it successful for us. And then for just the average fan, I would say it's, it's our ability to add context to what you're seeing and understand the things that are important to you. And we bring that, you know, to our audience on a weekly basis. So has, um, you know, the, some of the monetization and distribution changes that have happened in the last few years around, say, Twitter or, or Facebook, has that affected you guys in any way? You know, I think the biggest thing, so that programmatic revenue, like that you talk about is part of what we do. And it's important, but our biggest jump was when we outsourced our advertising to a third party. It was a culmination of, you know, a perfect storm of events because we were, you know, improving our workflow, improving our content, but it was still a situation where it's like, ah, we're not making a living doing this. Like <laughs> how long can this continue? It's really cool. It's really good, but we've got to make this thing happen financially. And so in 2020, you know, a lot of things changed in our country. There, there was what you might want to coin as, as the racial reckoning in our country, you know, on the heels of the George Floyd murder. And there was a lot of attention placed back into what are some of the things we're overlooking, you know, in the African-American community. And HBCUs were one of the things that kind of 
refocused to the front of the line, so to speak. And the other huge thing was that Deion Sanders, a global icon in the world of football, took the head coaching job at an HBCU at Jackson State. And that brought in fans and audience that we would have otherwise probably never been on their radar or never would have crossed paths with. And they became regular consumers of our content. So the tent grew uh, and we still had our niche, you know, loyal audience there. The presence and the ability to cover a global icon on a daily basis just brings in so many more eyeballs, which in turn turns into revenue. And that was quickly noticed by people who generate revenue for a living. <laughs> we generate content for a living. So we had a few discussions with a couple of companies and really decided on the right partner. And, you know, the increased viewership and the ability to just really come in with, you know, solid advertising really changed the course of our company. What has that been able to do for you, that change? Well, it enabled us to increase the resources that we have and enabled us to employ more people. I think I didn't answer this earlier, but, you know, now with contributors, we're probably on a regular basis, you know, it, it went from like two to 20 people and, wow. you, know, you know, sitting, I don't know who's out there listening. You might say 20 people, not a lot. But when you were doing everything yourself <laughs> for a long time, a couple of guys, you know, three guys, having 20 helping or I guess 40 helping hands, everybody has two hands for the most part. And that is a big difference. So, so we just invested in resources, both in technology and physical resources that really makes our workflow more efficient so we can be ahead of the game as opposed to just you know, exclusive. When you're so small in a startup, you just feel like you're reacting to everything. Everything is reactionary. You can get out ahead of the ball and, you know, deal with things as they come, you know, content-wise, because that's just the nature of the game, but really have the resources in place to do some some special and, and cool things content-wise and be efficient in doing so. It just helps the overall overall strategy. In this new configuration, are you still getting out and shooting video, doing interviews at, at ball games? Me personally or yeah, the company? Yeah, yeah, you. I imagine the company is. <laughs> yeah. I have taken a little bit of a backseat, not because I don't enjoy it, but as my kids get older, my God, my daughter played three sports this year in middle school. So you start to make those decisions, you know, am I going to a game or am I going to my daughter's game? And, you know, I'm almost 50 years old. I passed off a lot of those duties to some of our younger contributors, but it's still something that is I'm super passionate about. It's still muscle memory that I can't shake off. So, you know, I'm a mentor in many of those areas. But I, I if I have to show them how it's done, I can still go out there and, and do it with the best of them. What advice would you give to a small news site that's trying to grow and, and be successful? Yeah, so... I've seen a lot of, you know, in the last couple of years, a lot of people really gain traction quickly. And this may sound like common sense, but you have to keep your focus on the platforms that you own and make sure that you use social media as a way to draw people there. I see a lot of people that can quickly, you know, become popular, you know, on Twitter or YouTube. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But you always have to remember, like, all that can be taken away, <laughs> like, in a heartbeat. 
So make sure that you keep your website and the things that you own as the central focus of your company and have that be your funnel to where you're driving people and creating your revenue there. Because it's so easy to just quickly get on Twitter, quickly get on YouTube. It's a bit of a heavier lift, not impossible, not hard, but just a bit of a heavier lift to get your website to where you want it to be. But that's the thing I always tell people, make sure you focus on your website and keep that the, the center of your universe. I've been talking to Tali Carr about how HBCU Game Day grew its audience and revenue. You can read Holly's report about it at betternews.com. Tali, thanks for coming on the Better News Podcast. Thank you. It was so much fun. Thank you for allowing me to talk about HBCU Game Day and HBCUs. Always a pleasure and best of luck to you in the future, man. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News Initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News Initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.